All right, so we are continuing to walk through a brief series here, um, going over our vision statement, our purpose statement, I should say, um, and our values. So four weeks, last week we started with our purpose statement. Everybody can say it with me, right? We exist to reflect God's infinite worth through Christ for the glory of his name and the good of all peoples. So it's another way of saying we exist for God's glory um, and for the good of others. And that all happens, it only happens through Christ. Um, We need the grace that Jesus came, lived, died, and rose again to give us. So we looked at that statement through the lens of 1 Peter 2, 9 to 12. Um, Josh read a portion of that, verses 9 and 10, earlier on in the service. And so if you are in Christ, you are an organic, indispensable member of something that is so much bigger than just you yourself, okay? So we looked at it last week from chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. You are a part of a chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. You are God's treasured possession. This is our identity. This is who we are. And we have a purpose that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once we were not a people, now we're God's people. Once we had not received mercy, now we have received mercy. And actually, last week, um, verses 9 to 12 was like a little mini encapsulation of not only our purpose statement, but also all three of the values. So the gospel, it's there in multiple places um, in those verses, but it said once you've not received mercy, now you have. That's a pretty good summary of the gospel. It all comes through Jesus, but before mercy, after mercy. Community, you're a chosen people. So most people have their people, right? You've got your people. Who are your people? Well, guess what? If you're in Christ, here's your people. And you can travel to any nation of the world and you can run into your people because Jesus has his people scattered all over the earth, every tongue and tribe and people and nation. He died to redeem. And mission All of this grace is not given to us so that it just sits in the cul-de-sac of our life. We are conduits then of that grace. We are to enjoy and savor the excellencies of God who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, but we're also called to proclaim with our lips, with our life, drawing attention to this great God and Savior of ours. So last week, purpose. This week, First of our three values, gospel. Next week, Lord willing, community. And then in two weeks, mission. And we're going to look at all of these in the context of 1 Peter. Just some different texts in 1 Peter. So this morning, our text is 1 Peter 1, 3 to 9. So if you didn't notice that maybe in the Friday email, you can turn there now. Um, That's our text, 1 Peter 1, 3 to 9. And if you're using the Bible in the pew, if you, didn't, if you don't have a Bible, if you didn't bring yours, you'll find one in the pew in front of you. You can find this text on page 1014. 
So we're going to see several reasons why we treasure the gospel here at Bethel. Okay, values. What's valuable to us? What's most valuable to us? Well, gospel, the kind of community that the gospel creates, and this mission that the gospel sends us out on, that Jesus sends us out on. So we're going to see several reasons in this text in 1 Peter why we treasure it. Um, And just so that you know, whenever we review the values, I usually say this, it's both actual and aspirational, right? So we here at Bethel love the gospel, but I'd be the first to admit I don't treasure the gospel like I ought to. I want the gospel to be at the functional center 24-7, right? Don't you? So it is true, but it's not as abundantly, you know, saturating every nook and cranny of everything, every one of us and every nook and cranny of life, and we want that to be the case, and so it's aspirational as well. Okay, so we're going to read this passage in just a second, but before we read this text, I want you to think with me. Okay, two questions. Think Think of a time in your life when you were most filled with hope. And then here's the question. How did that hope, those hopes, affect your mood, your attitude, your motivation? Got something in mind? Second question. Think of a time in your life when you felt most hopeless. And how did that hopelessness affect your mood, your attitude, your motivation? So keep those thoughts in mind as we head into this text because we're going to see that 1 Peter 1, 3 to 9 has a lot to say about hope. All right, so let's dive in and see what we should see. Um, There are four points here this morning, and they'll be on the screen. You can follow along that way. Um, You can actually pull up the notes, or you can run out into the lobby, and nobody will judge you and grab a hard copy if if that's helpful to you um, for the notes. All right, so point number one, bless God for new life. 1 Peter 1, 3. Actually, let's read the whole thing and then we'll dive in. So, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, 
the salvation of your souls. So point number one, bless God for new life. Look at verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So why is Peter blessing God? Why is he praising God as he starts off with this letter? Well, he's writing to believers who are scattered. They're dispersed. You see that back up in verse 1. Um, these elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Um, that's Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. So those folks were suffering, and they were likely going to suffer more in the days to come. And so Peter's writing to them to help them face, to help them walk through the suffering that, that they are facing, that they will face, to walk through it like Christians. Seems like that could be pretty relevant for us as well. In the inimitable words of Wesley to Princess Buttercup, life is pain, princess. Anyone who tells you otherwise is selling you something. So we too will suffer. Most of us have already. Maybe in a variety of ways. Some of you have suffered tremendously. We all will suffer, suffer eventually. And the question is, how will we face it? How will we be prepared for it? How will we make it through? And the mercy and grace of God is what we need for our first descent into the valley of tears. And it's what we're going to need at the end when the valley of the shadow of death leads to death's door. So let's consider this mercy and grace of God here in 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. If you are a Christian, you have been given second birth, new and eternal spiritual life. We were dead, spiritually dead. Remember Adam and Eve? Remember the garden? In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. They didn't physically die in that moment, but spiritually, they were separated from God, from their source of life. So Paul's letter to the Ephesians says it like this, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, like the spiritual biography of everyone. When the gospel then takes root in a human heart, the Holy Spirit causes those truths, the, the concepts of the gospel become living realities, a person is born again. We can hear that Jesus is the only savior, we can hear, can go in one ear and out the other, that we're sinners in need of a savior, but when that concept, that truth becomes a reality, I know I'm a savior, I, sinner, I know I need a savior, and you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, you are born again. Spiritual rebirth. You're given new life. Actually, Peter talks about this just a little bit later on. Let your eyes scan down to the end of chapter one. In verse 22, it says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. The gospel is likened to imperishable seed. Once it's life, once it's planted and it begins to grow, its life is imperishable. 
and that happened through the living and abiding word of God. Same thing that Jesus told Nicodemus, right? In John chapter three, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. So if, if you and I were dead and cut off from God, and if we couldn't save or help ourselves, ultimately, spiritually speaking, no hope beyond this life, and God came and breathed new, eternal life into you, don't we have every reason to be eternally grateful? Like how right, how fitting that we bless God for how he has blessed us in this way that Peter writes about. But that's not all. Make sure you notice the motive here on God's part. What motivated God to do this? Verse three, according to his great mercy. Like this is God revealing his great heart to us. Like the ultimate reality behind the universe. What is it? Behind this world, behind your life, behind the lives of everyone you know is not this cold, impersonal, you know, turning of gears, you know, turning the hands of fate. It's not karma. That's not the ultimate reality behind the universe. It's not sterile, divine aloofness unwilling to get his hands dirty in the mess down here on planet earth. The ultimate reality behind the universe is a God full of mercy. According to his great mercy, God has a mighty, merciful heart. That is good news. That's the basis of the good news. At least good news for all but the self-righteous. Right? Like that parable in Luke 18, the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. If you think you don't need a savior, then this is not good news. It's not even relevant. But if you, like that publican who beat his breast, God have mercy on me, the sinner. If you know you've failed, if you know you're a sinner, if you're dogged by guilt and shame and regret, if you know you don't want what you deserve, but you need mercy, you want mercy, then how relieving is it to know that this is the ultimate reality behind the universe, the great merciful heart of God. If the gospel is true, if Jesus paid for every one of your sins, if you are not gonna get what you deserve, God has dealt with us infinitely better than we deserve. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? I love the quote by Richard Sibbs. We have it hanging above our front door. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in me. So that sign is above our door. Like if you walk in and you went like this, you would see it. Beth painted it on a piece of wood. And down below, at least until last night when it got broken, um, was a little mini basketball hoop. And man, I think it's a lot of play. Um, and the door's all beat up as a result of it, and whatever, okay? We've gone through like four of those basketball hoops for the last, I don't know how many years, but the sign is up above the basketball hoop, and you know, that sign has gotten knocked down a lot of times. In fact, oftentimes, if boys are really playing for a while, we're like, take the sign down, and then keep playing, because eventually there's gonna be an errant shot, knocks the wood, boom, and one time it cracked, and Beth, glue it together and, you know, squeeze it and whatever. And last time it fell off, it knocked one of the, you know, holders off. Why am I telling you all this? Um, 
I keep putting that sign back up. And I was thinking, you know, perhaps it's like a little parable. Isn't it ironic that it's our sin that can make us think that God is tired of being merciful toward us, kind of fed up and done being merciful toward us? Like Peter's saying here, put the sign back up. Put the sign back up. You need to be reminded. I need to be reminded. And oftentimes, we particularly need to be reminded when we suffer. Because we can think, what did I do? Like, what did I do to deserve this? We can wonder if God is punishing us for this or that screw-up. Like, is this because God is finally sick and tired of me? Listen, God's disposition toward his people is mercy. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in you. It's his great mercy that moved him toward us in the first place. Even on our bad days, especially on our bad days, this I call to mind. Therefore, I have hope that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. So what hope that inspires, right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. One New Testament commentator, I. Howard, I. Howard Marshall, writes, to be born is to enter into existence in a new world. Physical birth brings us into a world that will eventually perish. Spiritual birth brings us into a world where there is hope for the future. So why do we treasure the gospel? We are hopeless without it. But because of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, because of the great mercy of God, we have new and eternal life, and so we have a living hope. So let's look secondly at how this new life gives us living hope. Verses three to five. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So hold on. Like, have you ever thought, what is hope? What is that? I mean, at a generic kind of basic level, it's a desire or an expectation that something will happen in the future. And usually our hopes are desires or expectations of a future good, of a better future. So we all have hopes. We know that hope is a very powerful human motivator. Like I hope to get into this or that school or program. I hope to graduate. I hope it doesn't rain so that we can go on such and such an excursion or I can play in my game or whatever. I hope to get married. I hope to get the job. I hope to buy a house, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We cherish our hopes because they are important to us because they're where our better future is tied up in our minds and hearts. But they are so fragile. The weather, the stock market, circumstances out of your control, the choices of others, accidents, illness, disease, all of those things can dash our hopes and death can and will blow up all of our hopes, all of our earthly hopes. And the dashing of hopes is painful, isn't it? It can be devastating. Hope keeps us going. When we feel hopeless, you can get in a scary place really quickly. 
all kinds of bad things can follow. What if there was a hope that was so robust and had such vitality and strength that nothing on this earth could kill it? Cancer can't kill it. The infidelity of a spouse can't kill it. The loss of a job can't kill it. Aging, shrinking horizons can't kill it. That would be a reason to bless God. That would be vital bedrock footing for your soul when you go through sufferings and trials. And that's exactly, exactly what we have. That living, indomitable hope that was born 2,000 years ago on a Sunday morning when the stone was rolled away and out walked our Savior and Lord. I love that song. What's, what is the name of it? Jesus, our living hope. Is that what it's called? Um, I mean, we're just singing these truths. It's great. So the source of our new and eternal life is the resurrection life of Jesus. So Peter hints here at a New Testament teaching. I think most of you, many of you are familiar with it. We've even talked about it of late, that we treasure. It's an aspect of the gospel that we treasure. It's union with Christ. So think of it this way. In Adam, all die, right? And imagine that's the end of the story. Paul describes it like this. If Christ has not been raised, 1 Corinthians 15, 17, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Those who've fallen asleep, died in Christ, they've perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Jesus did rise from the dead and we are no longer in Adam. We are a new race of humanity. Remember last week? You are a chosen race. You're in Christ. Paul talks about it in Romans 6. We were buried, therefore, with him. We're united with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. Our old way of life is it, it's put to death, crucified with Christ. That old life, all of sin, it's just buried. It's dead and paid for, and we rise to newness of life. So his resurrection was the beginning of the new creation. He is the first fruits of the bumper crop of resurrection life that is to come. And it's already begun in us because we've been made alive together with Christ and saved by grace. So in Adam, the world was plunged into darkness and death and decay and destruction. And Jesus comes and plunges himself into the darkness, lets that darkness swallow him up. He died, he was buried. The universe holds its breath. I mean, what just happened? Had darkness won? No, no, no. He broke the power of death and darkness and he rose victorious as the beginning of God's plan to make all things new. So imagine light breaking forth from the grave and imagine him sending, just kind of picture this, sending forth his light into every tongue and tribe and people and nation and as people are born again, like, the light pierces the darkness, pinprick after pinprick in the dark fabric of this world and we are made alive together with Christ and saved by grace. It's the dawning of the new day. Like it can often seem like dusk heading into darkness here on planet Earth under the sun because of all the brokenness and violence and injustice and sin and all of that. But the reality is that we live in the darkness before the dawn. 
the dawn of the new and eternal day. So the resurrection of Jesus is the pledge. It's the beginning and it's the pledge of our future resurrection. We've been made new. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old is gone, new has come. And then one day, everything's going to be made new. We are all little previews of coming attractions. Which is why Peter writes in 1.13, set your hope where it's secure, where it can't get blown up with death and other earthly circumstances. Set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the day when Jesus returns and all things are made new. So if you are in Christ, your future resurrection is as sure as Jesus's. Your future, like perfect, wonderful, beyond your wildest dreams, everlasting life is as sure as Jesus is alive. Without the resurrection of Jesus, our sufferings and death would have the last say. Like, listen, make sure you face this reality right now. Our lives will all one day change irrevocably and our horizon will shrink down. Your next suffering could be your last. Like, at some point, all of our hopes will die in that final bout with suffering, except for our living hope. That hope's unshakable, unkillable. So, listen, just consider how real this is for I I thought of two sisters in our church family right now. And this is an opportunity to maybe encourage you to pray for them as they face these days and then also realize you're going to be there someday. So for Shirley, Shirley Booker, terminal cancer on hospice, maybe a matter of weeks at most. The horizons, like what is she going to hope for right now? It's not going to get better. And one day that day is going to come for you and me. But this living hope is very much alive. For Julie Barmore. So Julie's been living with her daughter and she had to go in the hospital because of some fluid around her heart and they had to determine at this point going to need to go to a nursing home. So that decision, can you imagine how hard that decision is, right? Like there's no going back. Like that's such a sad day, isn't, isn't it? Well, in one sense, yes, it is. Like these are real losses and we can lament them. But also, That move, that sad move cannot kill her living hope. So our suffering on earth is always temporary and does not get the last word. Our suffering on earth is small and a fading thing. Our living hope is big and substantial and it is a glorious thing. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, do you see why we treasure the gospel? But there's more. 
Look at how Peter unpacks this living hope. Verse three again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. So this living hope is an inheritance. It is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Inheritance comes from being part of a family, right? We've been born again into God's family. He's our heavenly father. Jesus is our elder brother. What does that mean as far as our inheritance goes? Like, what an inheritance is that? We're going to inherit the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth. The all things new heaven and earth where, we, where there will be no more night, no more death, no more sorrowing or, sorrow or pain or crying anymore, no more threats, no more sin, no more curse, no more suffering, no more abuse, no more bad news. We could keep going all afternoon. That is good news. That's why we treasure the gospel And these gospel hopes are not fragile. They are as strong and sure as the character and faithfulness of God. So this hope, this inheritance can never perish, spoil, or fade. It can't suffer any death or decay. It's imperishable. Can't suffer any defilement. It's undefiled, obviously. It can't suffer any diminishment. It's unfading. Maybe you notice that all of these descriptions are in the negative. Well, it is so glorious that it's really ultimately beyond our comprehension. It's ineffable or indescribable, you could say, or incomprehensible. I mean, certainly we can describe it, we can get at it, but some of the, sometimes the best way we can do that is by saying what it's not. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. That's not to say that there aren't any positive descriptions of our living hope. In fact, Chelsea read from Psalm 16, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That is a glorious positive statement to describe our living hope. Fullness of joy forever. But that's not all. This living hope, this inheritance that's beyond our comprehension, it is kept for us. And we are kept for it. Look at it there. You see um, in verses four and five, kept in heaven for you who, you who by God's power are being guarded. You're being kept through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So it's kept for us. We are kept for it. It's guarded. You know, thieves can't break in and steal this inheritance. It's not subject to any, you know, market movements. Any, there's no recession or depression that can hit this inheritance. If you are in Christ, it's kept for you and you are kept for it. That keeping happens by God's power. And it also happens by our faith. Do you see it there? Kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded and you're also It also is through your faith. So I think what Peter is getting at here is that um, God's power not only works out there in all the circumstances to bring about 
the realization of this living hope in the future, but it's also in here, helping us, rescuing us, preserving our faith, keeping us all the way to the end, trusting when our salvation in its fullness will be revealed. Because the Bible speaks about salvation, past, present, and future. We have been saved, conversion. We are being saved as we continue to turn from sin and trust in Jesus, as we're rescued from ourselves oftentimes. And we will be full fully and finally saved when Jesus returns. So the gospel is like this beautiful diamond and there's so many facets and we turn the diamond and just are in awe. So many glorious benefits that are ours because of the work of Christ. How could we not treasure the gospel? And so really, in a sense, that is a key kind of applicational point for us. I guess you could say it's easy to treasure other things, isn't it? That's why value number one gospel is both actual and aspirational. It's easy to treasure other things. Think lightly of the gospel. That's just way too easy. And that will mean if we think lightly of the gospel, if we think little in terms of frequency and value of the gospel, we will not praise our God and that praise will rarely be on our hearts and on our tongues but if we see the manifold excellencies of our God and the good news of Jesus we will be strengthened and we will be satisfied and God will be glorified and we will be stabilized to go through our sufferings with joy but that's not all the gospel is also key to being able to endure, actually, I just said it, endure um, sufferings in this life. So let's keep going here in the passage. Look at point number three, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, verses six to seven. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this, in this refers to everything that Peter has just said, verses three to five. In all this mercy and grace, in light of this living hope, you rejoice even though you're suffering, even when you will suffer in the future. Yes, the trials are grievous. We grieve, we hurt, we're sorrowful, but our sufferings can't snuff out this joy. Our joy is in unshakable realities. It's in our God and Savior who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So why do we treasure the gospel? Because it enables us to be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Our hope points beyond our trials. They won't last forever. We can rejoice because our suffering is not pointless. Our faith is strengthened, even purified and proven through sufferings. It shows us our need. It kind of, when we suffer, it certainly can harden us, but it can also open us up to our need and cause us to run to God as our refuge and strength and help. It can actually keep us from the dangers of pride and self-sufficiency. Suffering can make our faith stronger. It's like metal refined in the fire, right? 
So fire does not destroy gold. It does it good. Actually, the impurities rise to the surface. You can skim those off and the gold is purified. Well, similarly, suffering is like a crucible for faith. And our faith is purified and proven. And purified, proven faith is worth way more than gold. I mean, gold's precious, becomes more precious when it's refined and purified. But faith is precious, and faith that's been purified and proven through the furnace of affliction is even more precious. Gold's going to ultimately perish. But genuine faith, tested and proven, will never perish. Suffering can't kill it. Suffering can't kill our living hope. So what does this whole process result in? Our glory. You still awake? Our glory and God's glory. Like you might have expected the God's glory part, right? And that's true. We don't want to diminish it one bit. I mean, Peter doesn't diminish it one bit. He highlights it. It's why he begins this section with, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's glorifying God for his grace in the gospel. But look at the end of verse seven. Trials and suffering come so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. In chapter two, it says the honor is for you who believe. Huh. So praise, glory, and honor when Jesus returns. Here's the point. Those believers that Peter's writing to, and this is, can be the same for us, in a context where their faith is not celebrated, but rather maybe mocked, or opposed or persecuted, faith in this life may not actually receive much at the hands of the world. Oftentimes punished, mocked, ignored, marginalized, belittled, all those things. But in the life to come, it will be richly rewarded. There's a line in the Lord of the Rings, book two, two towers, where one of the sons of the steward of Gondor, um, Faramir is his name, and he's an honorable fellow. And he says in a conversation with Sam Gamgee, the praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. So listen, many people, and we can live this way too, many people live their whole lives longing for the approval of a parent or validation from their peers or recognition at work. But there is a praise that renders all other commendation and approval as just mere husks and ashes. Every single one of us, at the end of it all, are going to hear one of two things. Depart from me, I never knew you. Or well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. So imagine seeking to love people and faithfully follow Jesus and being snubbed and passed over and mocked and insulted and shamed and maybe seen as a nobody. And then at the end, not something to puff our chests out, it's all of grace from beginning to end, but the King of kings and the Lord of lords looks you in the face and 
declares cosmically this one well done good and faithful servant enter into the joy of your master that is the ultimate honor and praise and glory so why do we treasure the gospel it is the grace of God in the gospel that leads to this kind of faith and this kind of future, the living hope of praise, glory, and honor before the God of the universe smile. We already have his smile because we're justified in Christ, right? But one day we're gonna see it face to face, we're gonna see him face to face and see his smile and hear those incredible words, well done, good and faithful servant. Do you see, like if you're living for that, let the world frown, let people reject you. If that's real to you, we need this to be real, actual, aspirational. So finally, last point, joy in Jesus. The greatest treasure of the gospel is Jesus himself. It's God himself, our living Savior, who cannot be taken from us by suffering. So even though we can't see him, so it's interesting, Peter's writing this, and he says, though you have not seen him, I have, you haven't, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you don't, and actually neither do I, but we will. We can rejoice in the Lord always. So Fanny Crosby, some of you probably know that name. She was a prolific hymn writer. She wrote songs like To God Be the Glory and Blessed Assurance. And she was blind. She was asked once if she was upset. So that's a trial, that's suffering, right? She was asked once if she was upset that she was never, never able to see. And she said no. And so she was asked why, and she replied, because when I get to heaven, the first face that will ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. So because she had Jesus, this living hope, she was able to rejoice in and through the trial of blindness, and she was steadied and strengthened, not embittered at what she didn't have because one day she was going to see the most important thing that she had face to face. So why do we treasure the gospel? Because we have Jesus as a result. So brothers and sisters, let's rejoice in the Lord. Let's pray that God will restore to us. Does anybody need this? I think it's a regular prayer. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Let's preach to ourselves and not just listen to ourselves because we listen to ourselves and we've got all kinds of things to moan and, and complain and grumble about and we focus on all we don't have. But sometimes we need to take ourselves by the lapel and say, bless the Lord, oh my soul. You've forgotten all of his benefits. And you can read Psalm 103 and be helped or you can read 1 Peter 1 here and be helped, reminded of all the benefits that are yours in Christ, reminded of the gospel, and it gets re-centered, and we get re-centered, and we can bless the Lord, and we're stabilized to go through suffering with joy. 
So let's trust the mighty, merciful heart of God. When the hand of God leads us through suffering, I'm gonna close with this quote by Richard Sibbs, um, the same guy that said there's more mercy in Christ than sin in me. And then we're gonna sing the gospel song, that short song that we sang, and then one other to close. So listen to this quote. Suffering brings discouragements because of our impatience. Alas, we lament. I shall never get through such a trial. But if God brings us into the trial, he will be with us in the trial and at length bring us out more refined. We shall lose nothing but dross. From our own strength, we cannot bear the least trouble, but by by the Spirit's assistance, we can bear the greatest. The Spirit will add his shoulders to help us to bear our infirmities. The Lord will give us his hand to heave us up. You've heard of the patience of Job, says James. We have heard of his impatience. I'm sorry, we have heard of his impatience too. But it pleased God mercifully to overlook that. It yields us comfort in desolate conditions that Christ has a throne of mercy at our bedside and numbers our tears and our groans. Glory follows afflictions, not as the day follows the night, but as the spring follows the winter. For the winter prepares the earth for the spring. So do affliction sanctified prepare the soul for glory. Gospel is precious. It's powerful. Let's treasure it, brothers and sisters, not doubt its power. If we are going to reflect God's infinite worth through Christ for the glory of his name and the good of all peoples, neighbors near, nations far, We must first trust and treasure the gospel. Let's pray and then we'll sing. Lord Jesus, we believe. Help our unbelief. Amen.